Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He also, therefore, rejected the miraculous works of Jesus and rejected even the resurrection from the dead. But just because Jefferson rejected a number of the phenomenal works of Jesus Christ does not mean that he thought that Christ was of no importance. In fact, Jefferson, in his own way, had great respect for Jesus and particularly for the philosophy of the Lord Jesus. For him, Jesus was chiefly the teacher of common sense. If the world wanted to know what it is to have common sense, how to live, how to live in love and live in service for one another, then Jesus was where that was to be learned. Jesus, for him, was the teacher, Pelican tells us, of common sense. Now, I believe that all of us, from time to time, need a healthy dose of common sense. And if Jesus teaches us that, then that is wonderful in itself. But this notion of Jesus as the teacher of common sense falls woefully short of the biblical portrait of Christ. For the New Testament in its united weakness, whether it be the gospel accounts or the epistles, teach us that Jesus is God the Son, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It also teaches us, that is the entirety of the biblical weakness, that Jesus is the pattern of life. That is, if you and I wish to know how to live, then that answer is to be found in Jesus, for he is the pattern of our lives. It is precisely because Jesus is the pattern of our lives that the apostle instructs the Romans the Roman Christians, and through them, us, in Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, at the conclusion of a section in which he gives them instruction regarding their responsibility to government, their responsibility to one another, to love one another, and their responsibility to God to walk not in the works of darkness, but in the armor of light. It is for this reason, because Christ is the pattern of life, that he says to us in verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. I want to draw then this series on putting Christ on to a conclusion by making a few more reflections on this subject. As I have indicated, as we have pursued this theme of being clothed with Christ or putting on Christ, we have said that this is a strange imagery of wearing Christ, of putting Christ on. And this imagery is also strange, but it is, it is in accordance with another image that we read of in Galatians chapter 4, and particularly in verse 19, where Paul tells the Galatians that he is traveling, that he is in birth pangs until Christ, he says, in, is formed in them. Until Christ is formed in them. It is, of course, in this section, the Apostle Paul reminds them in verses 12 to 20 how that he, when he came to Galatia, 
He was welcomed and received in Galatia as even an angel of God. They gave him the same kind of welcome that they would have even given to Jesus Christ himself. But Paul was greatly disturbed by what was taking place in Galatia. Because in Galatia there were false teachers who were trying to take the Galatians away from their commitment to Jesus Christ and turn them back to keeping the Old Testament laws. And so Paul is concerned. And he, see, he sees then that they are on the verge of departing from their faithfulness, their Christ-likeness. And he says therefore that he's now once again having to travel. He's experiencing birth pangs until Christ is formed in them. This idea of Christ being formed in them and putting on Christ are one and the same. Both of these are talking about Christ-likeness. It is talking about taking on the shape of Christ. To put on Christ is to take the shape of Christ. To have Christ formed within us is to have the shape of Jesus Christ in our lives. We describe then this expression that Paul has in Romans 13 and verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as essentially a call to adopt the mind and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. To put on Christ is to first of all adopt his mindset and secondly to adopt his character. And last week we considered, we pursued this notion of wearing, of putting on the character of Christ. There we said that we must be characterized by the attributes that were in Christ. Namely, his compassion and his love and his patience and all of these characteristics that were in him. But we also said, I'm talking about, of course, his moral character. And, and more than that, we, we said we are to, if we are to be clothed with Christ and his character, we needed to wear his holiness. But to summarize what it is to wear Christ, it means more than merely wearing his virtues and his holiness in particularly. It means that we are, if we are to put on Christ, we are to adopt his absolute God-centeredness. That is, you and I cannot be like Christ unless we are reflecting the God-centeredness that was part and parcel of the life of Jesus Christ. Because if you were to try to summarize the life of Jesus Christ, if you were to use one description to, to, and to capture who Christ was and how he lived, then I would suggest to you that this notion of God-centeredness would be foremost in describing Christ was first and foremost God-centered. God was chief and foremost in his life. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means therefore we are to wear, we are to adopt his life of God-centeredness. But then we need to talk about this. We need to flesh out this God-centeredness, what does it look like in Jesus Christ? May I suggest first that Christ's absolute God-centeredness manifested itself first and foremost in his dedication to God. You cannot read the Gospels without realizing that our Lord Jesus Christ was dedicated to his Father. Indeed, both in his teaching and in his activities, he was ignited by one passion, that of serving his Father, that of serving God. He was dedicated to God. You notice this dedication because he was often worshiping God. He could be found 
from Sabbath to Sabbath in the synagogues, worshiping God. You see his dedication in his commitment to Scripture. Our Lord Jesus Christ was immersed in the Word of God. He knew the Bible. He would make references to the Old Testament. He talked about Adam. He talked about Solomon and Gomorrah. He made references over and over to Abraham and the Old Testament. Our Lord Jesus Christ was immersed in all departments of the Old Testament. In fact, you will find that he quotes del deliberately from the Old Testament. You remember the story. We're going to come back to that. When our Lord Jesus Christ was tempted just before he began his ministry. Each time that Satan comes to him telling him to turn stone into bread, what does our Lord do? He responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Where does he get that from? Scripture. He's quoting the Old Testament. And on every point of Satan's attack, he meets him with Scripture. He tells uh, the Jews, search the Scriptures for they that which speak of me. And even our Lord was so immersed in the Scriptures because of his dedication to God. He was dedicated to the Word of God. You could find that even on the cross, in, in its most agonizing moment, when our Lord Jesus Christ was strung upon the cross, he was still reflecting on Scripture because he could cry out in the language of Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the word of Scripture. David's words in Psalm 22. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on his God-centeredness. And his life of God-centeredness manifested itself first in his dedication to God. He was dedicated to the word of God and to the worship of God. But ultimately, he was dedicated to the will of God. If you wanted to see Christ's God-centeredness in his dedication to God, then you have to look at his dedication to the will of God. I've been over this ground, and so I will not take too much time here, but in John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Our Lord Jesus, because of his dedication to God, performed the will of God in every respect. And in the writer of Hebrews, sums up the Lord's dedication to the will of God, particularly in his death on the cross. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 to 8, the writer of Hebrews says, it is not For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, that is the Lord Jesus, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. The writer of Hebrews is explaining that the Old Testament sacrificial system, in all of the rituals, in all of the killing of animals, in all of the oblations that were offered to God, they still could not remove their sins. Nevertheless, the Lord Jesus Christ provided one sacrifice for sin to cancel, to remove our sins in the sight of God. And so he quotes Psalm 46 to 8, in which our Lord, at least speaking in the language of the psalmist, is celebrating the obedience, his obedience to his Father. He has come into the world to do the will of God, that is to die for our sins. 
and that the Father has given him a body, has given him a genuine human body and a genuine human mind that he might do God's will, which is to die for sins. And so the writer in verse 10, in Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, By that will, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. That Christ gave himself according to the will of God as an unblemished, as a perfect sacrifice to God. That in an act of complete self-surrender, Jesus adopts and carries out the will of God by going to the cross. That our Lord was not a victim. He willingly died on the cross because this was God's will for him. And in dying on the cross, he satisfied the penal requirements of the law for the Lord, the law commissioned that whoever sins should die, the soul that sinned should die. So he fulfilled the penal requirements of the law. But he achieved sanctification for us. And that is why it says, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It means that Christ's death on the cross, in obedience to the will of God, earned for us sanctification. That is definitive sanctification. That we who were sinners have been set apart in the sphere of the holy, so that when a person, when a Christian is called a saint, doesn't mean that they are necessarily saintly, so that they have no sinful problems. No, it just means that they are set apart. Saints are those who are devoted to God. Jesus Christ, by his offering of his body, he has sanctified us, he has set us apart in the sphere of the holy. We are now seen as those who are devoted to God. And therefore, we are fit because of Christ's sanctifying work on the cross to come before God in his presence in worship, to accept, to offer acceptable sacrifice to God. What I'm arguing then is this, that Jesus Christ was characterized by God-centeredness. He lived for the glory of God. He lived for the pleasure of God. And one of the signs that he was living for God, that he was God-centered, was first of all manifested in his dedication to the will of God. That is why Christ lived. That is why he died, because he was dedicated to doing God's will. His God-centeredness was seen first and foremost in his dedication to God, and particularly the will of God. But the, the God-centeredness of Christ... Christ's absolute God-centeredness manifested itself in a second way that is not only in his dedication to God, but in his delight in God. Scripture offers us very brief glimpses of the emotional life of Jesus. There are instances forever when, for instance, when the Bible shows that our Lord Jesus Christ was angry, justified and righteous anger. He was angry when he went into the temple and saw that they had turned the temple into a marketplace, into, into a place of exchange, a foreign exchange, really. And he drove them out because, you see, they were, they were desecrating the house of the Lord. We see the, the, the sorrow that was in Jesus Christ when he comes to the grave of Lazarus and Jesus, in the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But the scriptures also reveal that Jesus Christ was characterized by joy, by delight. And I'm going to cite at least two instances where 
we see something of the delight of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, that delight in God himself. We notice this, for instance, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 21. Jesus receives the 70, apostles, 70 disciples who had gone out to preach the word and they had returned. And Luke writes regarding Jesus. He says, in that hour, that is after the 70 had returned, Jesus rejoiced, exalted in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. He expressed his delight. Luke says he rejoiced in God the Father. I thank you. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Our Lord Jesus Christ delighted in God. He was not only dedicated to God, but he delighted in God. He praised him in worship. He praised him in prayer. He delighted in God. And here he's expressing his delight in thanksgiving because God has saved the disciples. God had revealed spiritual truth to them. That even while there were many who rejected the revelation that the apostles and the disciples brought, nevertheless they themselves had come to know the Lord. And so he, he, he rejoices, he delights in God. There's a second instance of the joy and the delight of the Lord Jesus Christ that characterized him as a man who was God-centered. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12 and 1 to 3, but particularly in verses 1 and 2. There we read, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Here is a specific reference to the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him. Now, the writer of Hebrews in, in chapter 11 has given us this fantastic gallery of the saints, of those who had persevered. And in chapter 11 of Hebrews, some 18 times, he kept on saying, by faith, by faith, by faith. So that if the question is, how did the Old Testament saints, how were they able to serve God for so many years, through so many difficulties, how were they able to endure to the end? It is because of faith. Because they believed in God, because they trusted wholeheartedly in God. The writer of Hebrews is writing to a community that is being tempted to abandon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying to them, you need to endure just as the saints of old endured by faith. He says, since therefore you are surrounded by this great cloud of witness. And there are those who think that Paul is thinking of an athletic competition in which they are runners in a stadium and the people are in the galleries looking at them. We, we do not know whether that is true or not. We know that there is an athletic imagery here. But he makes it very clear. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of weakness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnared us. He's telling them to run this Christian race. 
And he says, you are surrounded by a gallery, by a throng of saints. You have before you those who have gone to heaven. They have lived on earth, they have endured, and now they're in heaven. And you have these as your example. Now you are to run this race. And in order to run this race, you need to divest yourself of every hindrance. Every sin that entangles you, every sin that trips you up, everything that impedes your progress, you need to lay it aside. And you must run with endurance. There is the metaphor, the athletic metaphor. You must run with endurance. This noun, endurance, hypermenon, and the verb hypermeno occurs three times in this passage in one, verses 1, 2, and 3. He's calling them to endure. That is to remain in their place, to stand their ground in the faith. Now, how are they then to endure in the Christian life? Well, the writer says to them that they are to run with endurance, a race that is set before them, looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. And this, this participle, looking, qualifies the main verb in the sentence in verse 2, run. So you are to run this race by looking by concentrating upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author, the archegos, the originator, or the founder of our faith. It is because of him that we have true faith in God. So he is the archegos, the originator, and the founder of our faith. He says he is the author and the finisher. Teletius means the one who, who perfects, the one who brings something to a conclusion successfully. So he says he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now what the writer is doing, he's saying, I want you to run this race. I want you to look at Jesus Christ and I want you to look at his endurance. Now, how did Christ endure the cross? How did Christ endure? He says, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the painful and shameful ordeal of the cross. He, in fact, the writer says he despised the cross. It doesn't mean that he thought lightly of it, but, he sim- but it simply means that he cared nothing for the shameful and the humiliating and the embarrassing circumstance of his crucifixion. He was not put off because the cross represented shame and humiliation. He despised the cross in a sense. He cared nothing for its shame. Well, why did Christ endure the cross? Who for, he says, who for the joy set before him. That is, that is that which held the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That which impelled him, that which motivated him, was the joy that was before him. Now, the question is, what was the joy that was before the Lord Jesus Christ? It was the joy of being with his Father. You see, there was this tremendous delight in God. That even while he was on the cross, and even while men and women were looking on, and even though there were those who were embarrassing him and saying all kinds of things against him, even there on the cross, it was the joy that was held up before him, the joy of being in the presence of God that kept him there. Who for the joy 
who that for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. You notice that in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed to the Father, that the Father would give him the glory that he had with him before the beginning of the world. You see, what motivated Jesus was his desire as the God-man to be in the presence of God. It was not simply that he desired glory, but glory in communion with God. That fundamentally, our Lord Jesus Christ was riveted not upon himself, but upon God. He was thoroughly, utterly God-centered, and his God-centeredness manifested itself in his dedication to God and in his delight in God. He wanted to be with his father. He hungered for God's presence. And he was kept on the cross by this joy, the joy of being with God that was set before him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means putting on the God-centeredness of Christ. A God-centeredness that manifests itself in dedication to God and in delight in God. But thirdly, Christ's absolute God-centeredness manifests itself in his dependence upon God. And if you remember nothing else, then I want you to remember this. That when we think in terms of the God-centeredness of Jesus Christ, it manifests itself most plainly in his dependence. Not just in his dedication to God or his delight in God, but in his dependence upon God. You and I need to know that the entirety of Christ's life was lived in dependence on God the Father. Jesus himself makes it clear that he lived his life, not by hidden resources of strength in himself, for we know that in Christ we had God and man together, that he did not live his, his life on earth by depending on his God or divine nature. He did not rely upon his, his divine omnipotence and omniscient to live life. He depended upon God. And I can point this out to you in a couple instances where Jesus points out clearly that his life was one of dependence upon his father. Take the instance in John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30, where Jesus is now engaged in a, a conflict with the Jews because he had healed on the Sabbath. And there in this debate with those who were around him, Jesus stressed the symmetry of his work and that of the Father. For he says in, in, in John chapter 5, verse 21, he says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. John 5, 17 and 18. So Jesus says, my father has been working and I have been working. He's therefore claiming equality with God by calling him his father and by associating his work with the work of the father. Our Lord Jesus caps off this theme of his equality with the father with another astonishing statement in verses 22 and 23 of John chapter 5. He says, for the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the son that all should honor the son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Our Lord now 
has equated himself with the Father. He shares the Father's authority. He's the one who works as the Father works. He gives life as the Father gives life. He deserves honor as the Father deserves honor. And he is the one who judges men on behalf of the Father. Now, although he is the Son of God, therefore, and has equality with the Father, Jesus is at pains to point out that his life is lived in dependence on the Father. Because he says this in verse 19. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. He underscores his dependence upon the Father again in verse 30 of John 5. He says, I can do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent to me. John 5.30. What our Lord was saying was that though he was equal with the Father and though he's equal with the Father in his essence, in his function, he submitted himself to the Father. That he did nothing by his own initiative. He only did what the Father commanded him to do. Our Lord Jesus, therefore, states plainly his dependence upon the Father. But the outworking of his dependence upon the Father appears clearest in our Lord's life of prayer. How do you know that our Lord Jesus Christ was thoroughly God-centered and in his, his God-centeredness dependent upon the Father because our Lord Jesus Christ was primarily a man of prayer. Luke, more than all of the evangelists, focus on the life of prayer, on our Lord's life of prayer. In fact, some 19 times Luke uses the verse Pazerkamai, that is to make a request to pray to God. And it is very interesting how he describes our Lord's life of prayer, of prayerful dependent upon God. First of all, he shows that our Lord Jesus Christ prayed at critical junctions, at critical moments in his life. First of all, in Luke chapter 3, we see that the Lord Jesus prayed before he commenced his ministry in what is called the baptism narrative. We read in, John, in Luke chapter 3, 21 and 22, that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Only Luke shows us that Jesus Christ received the gift of the Holy Spirit in response to his prayer. It is after he had prayed that the heavens opened and that God sent the Spirit of God upon him and said, you are my beloved son. And Jesus prayed. Critical moment. Before he enters into temptation by Satan in Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13, Jesus goes into the wilderness like Israel because he is the second Israel. He has come to succeed where the first Israel failed. And he goes into the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. What is he doing? He's praying and fasting before he begins his public ministry, before he meets Satan head on. And it's only after he has prayed that he comes out in the fullness of the Spirit able 
to do the will of God. Luke also tells us that Jesus prayed at decisive moments. Before Jesus chose the 12 disciples, what was he found doing? He was praying all night. Our Lord didn't just go out there and grab 12 guys and say, you know what, you guys, you're going to follow me and you're going to be my disciples. And then he went and prayed and said, no, Lord, these are the choices I've made. Please ratify my choices. Very often we do that. We decide on a direction and we go to God and say, no, God, could you make this work? Our Lord didn't do that. We are told... Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose 12 whom he also named apostles. In Luke chapter 6, 12 to 13. We see the Lord Jesus praying at critical moments. Before the crucifixion, our Lord is in the garden of Gethsemane. And there we are told that he withdrew from the disciples about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground in Luke 22, 39 to 45. The writer of Hebrews, years later, looking back at this incident, said Jesus offered up prayers with supplication and tears and vehement cries to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Do you know that Jesus Christ feared his father? He was heard because of his godly fear. We're not talking about a cringing, cowardly fear, but that reverence and awe for God. Our Lord Jesus Christ was devoted to God in prayer, and his prayer was characterized by reverence for God. He was heard because of his godly fear. Our Lord Jesus Christ prayed at critical moments. He prayed on the cross, Father, according to Luke, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when he was about to die, we read from Luke that Jesus cried with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Our Lord was characterized by prayer to God. But he not only prayed at critical moments, he prayed habitually. For Luke again informs us in Luke 5 verse 16, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. He would often leave the crowds and go by himself and seek God. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ recognized that prayer is a part of worship, but it is in prayer that God strengthens. It is in prayer that God directs and blesses. And so Jesus continually depended upon the Father. In fact, the disciples could say, teach us how to pray. Why would they ask Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray, if they did not know Jesus Christ to be himself a man of prayer? And he said, pray in this manner, our Father who art in heaven. He's the one who encourages them. He says that they are to pray. He says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks find. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. He's the one who tells them in Luke chapter 18, men are always to pray and not faint. And so my friends, 
You and I must live a God-centered life. We must adopt Christ's God-centeredness. We must live with God as a center point of our lives. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ means putting on his character and primarily his God-centeredness to have this consuming passion for the living God. Today, we are consumed by many interests. For many of us, it is our family that is the most important. For others, it is our jobs, our careers, our education, money, ourselves, a host of issues may be at the center of our lives. And yet none of these things, however great in themselves, are worthy of our central attention in life. None of these things deserve to be the focal point of our lives. Isaac Newton, the great scientist, talked about himself, compared himself to a little boy who played by the bank of the great ocean, diverting himself by looking at one little shell and then moving on to a more beautiful shell, while the vast ocean of truth lay undiscovered before him. And we are often like Newton's little boy. We flirt from one interest and one priority to another priority, while the vast riches, which is God himself, lies untapped, unexplored before us. Jesus Christ was marked by an absolute, thorough, utter God-centeredness. And this is how he lived, that you and I should know that we are to live in this manner. First and foremost, for God. God first, and everything else second. That is how our Lord Jesus lived, and that is how we are to live. And we are to do so because God deserves to be first. For he is the author of life. He is the sovereign God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. In him, Luke tells us, we live and move and have our being that you and I can never live. We, we have no hope of seeing tomorrow if God does not spare us. We, we make our families, and we are to take care of our families, but we make our families idols. We put them above God, but our families will never exist, and we will never exist to care for them if God does not care for us first. We need to understand what the priority of life is. It is God. And so long ago, the wise man says, Hear now the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. God deserves to be central because he is the one who is sovereign creator of life. He deserves to be central because he is a covenant-keeping God, a God who makes promises, who made a promise to Abraham. 400 years it took to be fulfilled. But God did not forget because he kept his word by bringing out Israel and giving them the land God promised to Abraham. God is a covenant-keeping God, a faithful God, a God who makes promises and keeps them. This God deserves to be praised because this is a God of love. The God who sees us in our misery and in our sins and did something about it. God demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
This, this Savior, this God who rescued us from our sins in Jesus demands and deserves the entirety of our lives. He is the one who sent, here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. He has given us a savior. He has delivered us from our sins. He deserves to be chief. It is, it is an awful, horrible insult to relegate God to secondary status in our lives. You see, Jesus Christ understood the value of God and elevated him to the primary place of his life. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to have that kind of God-focusedness to life, that kind of God-centrality to life. And for this to occur, it requires a conversion to God. It requires a radical change. It requires a new heart, a spiritual conversion to God. We must be delivered from sin, delivered from ourselves and from our petty interests. We need to be saved. We need Jesus Christ to save us. And we can be saved by believing in Jesus Christ and by turning from our sins. By believing in him who died for our sins. And then he will give us this God-focused orientation of life. We need to have our eyes open. Paul prays in, in, in Ephesians 1 verse 18 that the eyes of their understanding might be opened to know the hope of their calling. To know that is what God has provided for them in glory and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints for you to be God focused you need to know the hope to which God has called you a hope that goes beyond this life and you need to know that God has called you to be his glorious inheritance that you as a believer are God's inheritance for you to have God as central you need to know what you mean to God you don't know what he mean. No, you don't, you, don't, you don't really need to know what he means and what he is himself, but you need to know who you are in his presence. You are his glorious inheritance. My friends, God must be first. We must view all of life and all that we do through the prism of God. God must be first. And this God-centeredness must manifest itself in our dedication to him. We must first of all be committed to God. It must be revealed in our dedication. We must offer ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our gifts as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's what Christ did. He gave himself to God. He was dedicated to God. We must express our God-centeredness not only by our dedication to God, but by our delight in God. We must revel in God. We must revel in the word of God and in the will of God. We must realize that God himself, by his nature, is infinitely sweet. That knowing him is to know true joy and true happiness. We must ask God to revamp our spiritual taste bud so that we delight in him. That to know him becomes the passion and the joy of our heart. That there is within us a secret spring of joy that the world does not know, that things cannot fill. That secret spring is God himself. That my delight and my joy may be in my God and Savior. You see, you're going to be God-centered when you're delighting, not only dedicating yourself, but delighting in him. And you're going to be God-centered 
when you are dependent upon him. Jesus lived in dependence upon God. And we as a church, we ought to live in dependence. That's why we pray. Because we are saying to God, we cannot do this on our own. We cannot live this life of endurance and faith on our own. We cannot ward off Satan in our own strength. We cannot take ground for your kingdom's sake. We cannot live the life you want us to live unless you help us. Jesus was a man of prayer because he was dependent. My dear friends, are you God-centered? How do you know you're God-centered? Because you're dedicated first and foremost to God. Because you're delighting in God. And because you are dependent upon God. That's, and these are the marks, at least some of the marks, of a God-centered life. Let me close by saying, take courage. For some of us, the idea of being like Christ is like mission impossible. You know, some, if you look at your life, sometimes you think you take two steps forward and four backwards. You don't seem to be making progress. You have a problem with anger, for instance, and you bite your tongue a million times. People annoy you, you bite your tongue, you don't lash out, and then one day you can't take it, you just... And you feel terrible. You say, well, this is not how Christ would have responded. We wrestle against our own sins, sins that we have, each of us, myself and, and you. And sometimes we fail. And sometimes we feel we'll never be like him. But I want you to take hope. I want you to realize that Christ-likeness has been guaranteed. That the Bible has predicted that one day we will be like him. For ultimately, it is not our work that will make us Christ-like, but the work of the Spirit. Let me leave you with these words. The words of the Apostle John. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Continue to put on Christ. Continue to clothe yourself with the mind and with the character of Christ, and particularly with his God-centeredness. For one day, when you see him, you shall be like him by the grace of God and the power of his Spirit. Amen.